Welcome to Locarno Meets, where the most exciting new talent and established legends of cinema come to chat about art, life, movies, and everything in between. Brought to you by UBS and hosted by me, Alexander Miller, from Locarno Film Festival. Ted Hope used to work for Amazon, but now he's going to seize the means of cinematic production. When Ted was head of movies at Amazon Studios, he brought in radicals like Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch to play with the tech giant's money. They joined him because of Ted's previous 25 years of experience making the most important American independent movies there are. But after some real success, Ted left Amazon, and now he's got a different plan. An artist's bill of rights. But while he's busy reimagining the future of the cinematic landscape, some of us are still trying to get over watching his films as a teenager. So look, when I found out I was going to interview you, I was reminded of a story from my past. When I was about 13, 14, and five or six of kind of me and my friends were all on the cusp of working out what type of human being we were. And we all sat down and we banged on happiness on VHS. And about 50% of the people <laughs> left the room. <laughs> and the, those of us who stayed are all kind of best friends still now. And, and it really made me think about how independent movies were such a part of kind of building an identity. It was a bit like, you know, I like Nirvana, I like The Smiths, I like Happiness, I like Last Days of Disco. And I don't know, <laughs> does that still happen? Oh, I think it, it still happens and more so, but across many different forms. Something I've been encouraged about, um, it's not quite the, the formative ages of like 13 through 15. Like I still, I feel uh, th there's multiple versions of me, but the, the 15, 16 year old still lives very much in me, you know, wanting to just hear the clash, you know, remembering like the thrill of, for me, it was uh, when I was uh, 18, this weekend, I went to my first college girlfriend's house and you can explain, understand what kind of what the excitement of what all that meant. Big deal. But uh, it was the weekend that Sandinista by the Clash came out on import. So did Raging Bull uh, in the cinema and Godard's Every Man for Himself. And she lived outside of New Haven, Connecticut. So there were art house. And that's what we did, you know, basically that weekend. I got to consume what I felt was like political, angry uh, art that you could dance to in one form or the other. And I got to share a bed with a young woman my age. And uh, I was like, wow, this life has a lot to offer. And I was like, I want to make these movies. And I never thought I would get the opportunity. When I go now to like movies that are kind of off the mainstream uh, commercial path, particularly films that have a either a challenging aesthetic or some something provocative to say, and I'm in New York or Los Angeles, the audience is half my age. Mm. Like they're still going, and like a lot of people speak about art house as being a very much a gray form now. But I think there's a lot of younger people who really now have recognized that they've been fed a consistent diet of frankly mediocrity and conformity and they really want something that is different. And they don't have the same bias, I think, that, you know, coming of age, I really didn't want the stuff initially that came before me. I, I threw out 
all of my Jimi Hendrix albums when I was like 15. I was like, that's the old stuff. And I had to go find them again when I was 30, you know, but uh, I think that they appreciate Bellatar. Mm. You know, I went to see Uncle Boon Me in New York and half the audience was clearly under 30. You know, I have a son who's a artist, business person, and uh, he speaks all the time. He's like, I just want something that's not what other people have made. And he's really hungry. Granted, he grew up in that kind of environment. So I think like 100% kids, young adults see something and grab onto it. Like that's the beauty of, of film is it's eternal. It's an eternal zombie vampire that will never die. And it will infect others along the way. It's interesting that you say, you know, you talk about your son and the environment that he grew up in being surrounded by, you know, alternative opportunities effectively when it comes to what art he looks at. But the reality is of the, the self-curation that is possible on the internet that actually anyone young now can surround themselves with those worlds and those opportunities. And I find it exciting, refreshing, and also reassuring because it makes me not feel mad because I think I've noticed there being a new generation of cinephile. I think that sites like Letterboxd have kind of done quite a lot to encourage people to dig into the history of cinema. And I guess my question is if that that interest and kind of collector's passion can be pivoted into a, you know, a new explosion of actual independent producers, directors, actors, etc. I fully believe so, but in a different way than we've done before because we haven't done such a good job at that. The nature of access currently on internet rarely brings context and rarely brings community and rarely offers an opportunity for action. I think when I try to define cinema, all those other aspects of marketing and engagement and, and the transitioning into something else, the porting, are part of what cinema is. There isn't a collector's economy in cinema, unfortunately, right now of any substance. And there's much that we could do to stimulate that. My son, when he was like 15, said like, Ted, because he doesn't call me dad. He's like, Ted, <laughs> what's wrong with your business is you guys don't know how to create grails. You don't have the thing that I want to search for for a long time. And if I find it, and can win it somehow, I can demonstrate my devotion and love for what I do, mm. right? But it's kind of amazing when you think about cinema and it has not just so many artworks within the body of the artwork mm. itself. There are so many artworks that are the extensions beyond that core work. And yet we allow everything to diminish in impact and value by moving it towards a sole transactional tool. But the whole medium of where we move to this moment of dominance by the global streamers and the platforms that are streamers, and I say that as somebody who heavily participated in it, makes us all devalue this thing that is capable of holding so much of our love. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because... I think Grails is what cinema did very, very, very well until about 15 years ago, because growing up, it'd be like, right, well, how can I find these films from Hong Kong that I'm reading about? 
right? As an English person, you used to literally have to go to America just to get videos, right? <laughs> because they didn't ship them over here. But it actually made the trip yeah. much more pleasurable because you came back with your loot. Exactly, like, exactly. And still, like, like South Korea makes beautiful videos. You know, like we don't, that collector's economy, like you see the way that vinyl had its resurgence. Like I so remember, you know, I got rid of my vinyl three times over. And then one day my wife and I are uh, having a like super late lunch in London and they've got a little turntable in the corner and, and they're playing Carol King's Tapestry, which isn't my like jam, but I grew up on it in a household of women and like Tapestry was on all the time. And when the album ended, I had to go turn it over and just holding it. I had, you know, my Madeline moment where it was just like, whoa, I got to go buy vinyl again. I got to have that physical intimate experience. So, so do we have too much access then? You know, is, is, is part of the problem that as fun as it is for everybody to be able to just kind of rocket through the entirety of uh, film history on their laptop, that actually that, that diminishes the product itself. It removes the journey, removes the work. There's no question we are now in a era of abundance and access. And that's profoundly different than how we grew up and what we had before. And in both the embrace of that, things get sacrificed without intent, right? And in uh, the rejection of it, people value things that no longer might be applicable, right? And I think that 100% lack of access or barriers to access, perhaps is a better way to say it, stimulates desire, mm. right? I find it interesting, you know, how we used to essentially like calendar movies and now we drop them, yep. right? You know, that there's so much meaning in those words. The beauty of having something that's out there that you can't get and you want to have details is it stimulates anticipation, right? And anticipation starts making the, the event all that much better. Live music right? We buy a concert ticket generally two or three months in advance, right? We start to plan a social action with a, you know, our friends and family on what we're going to do around that concert. We spend a tremendous amount of money, which means we better get our money's worth, right? But that's about anticipation. We psych ourselves up. We prime ourselves for it in an immediately accessible entertainment economy, as we have now via the, the internet, all of that an anticipation, all of that priming, mm. getting you know psyched up for it is lost, right? Mm. And in that same sort of way, I think that particularly types of cinema that I love, it isn't complete until it has a in-depth conversation around it, right? And sure. so, it, so if you are engaged on a platform even with family and friends in the room with you, it's really hard when it's done not to just move on to the next thing. In fact, it's designed to move you on to the next thing, right? All of that decontextualizes the, the work, right? We've been working on one movie for seven years that we're almost done with now. Yesterday at lunch, we were with a filmmaker who's been working on her project for 27 years, right? So much work of so many people mm. is within every film. And yet we're taught now that it's content, yeah. that it's, it fills empty spaces, that it's not something that should be an act of devotion. 
And I'm not trying to like say like, hey, our stuff is really great and you should, you know, I want you to give me 10 hours of your time. But also maybe a bit though. (laughs) (laughs) But for the things that we we get excited about, like it is warranted. But the problem here then is that um, the people who feel like you don't necessarily control the means of production currently, you know, and while the platforms are controlled by four or five large companies for whom film distribution is a tiny little bit of their business, they're unlikely to see the light. So assuming that we are now just in a digital era and there's no point in pretending otherwise, is there potential for a different type of digital platform controlled by different types of people that speaks to what you're talking about? You know, it's interesting, you know, um, the first wave of potential for digital production and distribution online was probably actually like around 2006 to 2010. And we were already engaged in no budget filmmaking and everyone was recognizing that, that the, the tools of production um, had uh, removed a significant barrier of entry and that the, the inevitable result of this thing called the internet uh, was going to open up the, the tools of distribution. At that point was my first attempt to try to build a global studio based around low budget and frankly indie, you know, aesthetics and attitudes. And there was uh, clear that there were some things that were lacking and those things arguably are still lacking um, you know, one of the flaws of movies, I think, is that uh, you've always had to tell everybody about the film, whether they like going to the movies or not, or the, the, the right film for that person's taste. And, you know, it was a super costly endeavor that uh, had mixed results in the process. Targeting audiences that respond to certain types of film is still a we find a business and art that hasn't been, been fully mastered. Sure. But I still believed in that possibility. Brian Newman, who's a guest at the festival and I um, had a very successful failure in <laughs> launching an app called Flicklist, which was a, um, a social leaning um, platform agnostic uh, queue. And that was the idea was to use list building and social to help people discover um, and engage. And it works. That's what Letterboxd is. You know, yeah. And like, the, and there's more than it could do. But um, through that, it ultimately, through many steps, led me to run a boutique streamer that was focused on art house cinema called Fandor. Mm. And that, too, had some inherent problems in its initial conception. And there were interesting things. That model which I found totally compelling was um, you got paid by minutes of engagement as a rights holder. And we had lots of interesting content. The curious thing of it at the time was although we had a wonderful selection of classic and art house and international cinema, we also happened to have a great collection of Japanese monster movies and kind of a 70s softcore porn with an artistic bent, vinegar syndrome, if you know that label. Um, and others. And as much as everyone had on the queue, all that international <laughs> cinema, all those prize winning films, the view time, particularly after 10 p.m., seemed to 100% favor the other two genres. How strange. You know, but uh, <laughs> when I realized like the customer growth 
of that, you know, the cost was well above the value. Mm. But it was through that that led me to Amazon. And one of the reasons I was very eager to do that was like, I want to go to a place where the audience already is instead of having to bring them on. And I think we're still profoundly challenged because of the abundance of choice and access to, to uh, have yet to build individually speaking and on a community basis, both the, the filters to, to limit that choice and the beacons and magnets to bring more in and to push them out to find new um, members, as it were. There are many ways that can get solved. I'm not sure it's big business's priority at all. And uh, the question of whether, uh, you know, smaller communities of, you know, taste and allegiance will be enough to aggregate that um, in a world where the main tech. It's going to be down to the tech, right? It's like if Google didn't take all of the advertising revenue from YouTube and stuff, then that would work perfectly because yeah. it's a, you know it's a wonderful player and it's very easy to distribute. And as you've said before, actually the internet's given us lots of opportunities to build communities and become obsessive over things. But unfortunately, it also holds the purse strings with a you know with an iron glove. But but let's quickly talk yeah. about Amazon yeah. because sure. you went to Amazon, which now seems totally weird. I've got to say, and also looking back, you bringing in Spike Lee, Ginger Moosh. Spike's brother, Mike. <laughs> you know, now that all kind of seems like a dream. And and when I caught your keynote the other day, you were basically saying we should ban Amazon from making uh, making movies. So it's been quite a journey for you. Your words, not mine. <laughs> what about what I do? What I do feel uh, is, first of all, streaming didn't have to go in the direction that it is. And you know, I was given a chance to get my vision going. There were major blockers, you know, to that from happening, but at least I got my foot in the door. Um, but it was hard and harder than I, than I could use to triumph. Like I, my goal when I went to Amazon was to have the authored cinema or as uh, perhaps more colloquial said, prestige cinema, but the folks that had a, a true voice become a core uh, aspect of what the Amazon, you know, message or brand or attitude or vibe was that there was committed, unique and distinct voices. You know, you go back to happiness, right? I love movies that are willing to offend somebody, right? I, I love mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, I love movies that, that, that somebody, uh, you know, is willing to take that risk of, I love it when it feels that something might be on the verge of falling apart or going too far or, you know, being caught with their pants down. It's like, whoa, are they really going to go there? Holy cow. I find that so exciting, right? But the challenge you get on a, on a global platform, particularly one that might be involved in many other businesses and is a publicly traded company, and is prone to different forms of stock manipulation um, and just news and buzz and how much those things react. Particularly right now, the movies that are willing to speak truth to power, mm -hmm. political documentaries, are not being acquired anymore by National Geographic, by Disney or Apple. You know, Disney, Apple, Nat Geo, 
because of the way they do business with the authoritarian dictatorship of China, they uh, refuse to say anything negative about that, for instance. And you see the same things in different countries that have really uh, reprehensible human rights records. I mean, look how much Saudi Arabia is investing in the arts, right? Right. Because these companies are doing business of all sorts in all of those territories, they prefer not to get involved. Great. That's their choice. I actually believe that they should have that choice. But when they become the dominant tool for access to culture, there's something wrong. I think the answer to how do we do, uh, address that is actually really quite simple. It, it's first off recognizing that streaming is a utility. It's like the phone company. It's like electricity. They shouldn't be allowed to enter the field of creating and determining what is created in terms of their word, not mine, yeah. con content, right? And, and what goes on. They should simply be a platform. They should be required to provide access of all sorts to it and let the people decide, you know, which has challenges to algorithms as they exist today, but is a solvable problem. And it's also, uh, I think we need as both independent states and nations and as a global community to start to recognize something like a artist bill of rights, right? Where, where we all start to look at that access to culture and the, the opportunity to express oneself is a human right, that we need to maintain a level playing field for that. And other things start to follow from that. Like if we want to look at a artist's bill of rights, just like I don't think any of us should ever be allowed to sell ourselves into slavery or into long-term contracts, like even the way you still in the music business can sign away for seven years, it should be mandated that you have to receive back-end participation. Mm -hmm. You should be able to participate in the success of your film or your book or your song at not what the current platform le level Not the Spotify are. level. Yeah. Uh, that that should be a requirement. In a similar way, I think that that we as creators, you know, both the artists themselves and their supporters in terms of, of business should own the data that their work generates. It just as a person that considers both an artist and an entrepreneur, I regularly have to course correct to try to give the people what they want mm. and so that the business goals and artistic goals are aligned together. How do you expect me to do that when I don't know the results of my work, right? That, that it should be a legal requirement. These aren't particularly like new ideas. You know, I'm mm. certainly not alone in having them. And I felt that there, there are good business reasons for all of these too, both for the people that build the platforms and the technology that allow this work to come out. And I fully believe that they should be able to earn uh, from doing that. But initially for me, like going into Amazon, I felt like there was much more opportunity to move that from the inside. But also it's like, if, if you have your artist bill of rights, if you empower the artist, then suddenly more people with a predilection towards taking risks will be taking those risks. And suddenly you'll do weird stuff like discover Ang Lee while making a gay Chinese movie. And guess what? That talent has fueled Hollywood 
for two decades. Yeah, exactly. And there's times and times again to see that, like, you know, The Lion King, which arguably is one of Disney's greatest properties, you know, required a weird East Village artist to bring it to the stage with giant puppets and all sorts of things who had only become that level of artist because the support of the government for art of a different sort. That not everything has to be designed for commercial intent to reach a level that it can actually reverberate and ripple in a much bigger way. You know, it can come from the heart and simply the desire of someone to express themselves in a unique way. So sum up on some level, are you hopeful? I'm very thankful that uh, I was born with the name of, of hope. I'm a big believer that, you know, any problem is actually solvable and anything that is imagined will eventually come true. It doesn't necessarily mean it will be successful, but there are ways that that can, can happen. I think that the various disruptions and the various uh, reluctances and, and barriers that have come to uh, bigger change um, have an equal and opposite reaction. And I see that we are at a very much of a pivot point a opportunity to actually do something profoundly different. I've seen such opportunities before. Frankly, I've been able to capitalize on them. I think the time right now to build worker-owned small companies of different sorts that become favored third-party suppliers to platforms, utilities across the globe, and can actually prioritize the, the elements, the attributes of cinema in its widest definition can actually be built now and succeed in a way that never has been possible before. But it requires people to sometimes delay their gratification, both in the creator stage and in the consumer stage, prioritize the things that they love and be willing to make some small sacrifices on the way. Convenience, which is really what I think the last decade has been about, isn't necessarily beneficial to cinema. We thought that it was gonna be incredibly beneficial to discovery, but other forces were also at work that didn't allow that to, to happen. And I think that perhaps had discovery been a priority for these utilities, things might be a little bit different. Um, but I find it amazing how uh, the, the media literacy, the, the historic knowledge that young people have for all art forms in a way that when I came up, I could barely manage one or two. And I generally had more depth of understanding than my contemporaries. But now everybody seems to be juggling five different art forms and they know the long history in minute detail that I never did. And I think that that's where um, things start to morph, combine, generate, and create something new. So I believe the people entering any art form right now under the age of 35 recognize that we failed and fucked up in a big basis and that they can build something better and not just build a better mechanism to, to engage with it, but build a better art form within it uh, that speaks to them more directly than we've ever had the opportunity before. And uh, I'm super hopeful at what that will bring because it won't look like what came before. 
Well, I hope you're right. I think you speak a lot of sense. And if you do decide to go full Martin Luther and go nail your uh, your declaration to the walls of Disneyland, I will follow you. <laughs> um, Thank you a lot for that. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks again to Ted. This has been Locarno Meets, a podcast from Locarno Film Festival brought to you by UBS. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your pods. This has been a true anti-classic production hosted by me, Alexander Miller, and produced by Jack Boswell.